great gowns, beautiful gowns. Hi guys, I'm Lauren Garoni and welcome back to Every Outfit. I am Chelsea Fairless. And uh, this week's been a bit fucking depressing. Yeah, this week has been really, really depressing, obviously. Although one cool thing did happen to me that I didn't tell you about. Oh? Guess which celebrity stopped me on Santa Monica Boulevard and did a full minute-long stop and chat about my dog. Jonathan Van Ness? I thought I gave it away with Santa Monica. I mean, close, but no. Housewife. (gasps) Lisa Vanderpump? It was so major. She was wearing a black jacket with like these giant like oversized like 80s jewels, like Escada type shit. And yeah, she was planning. She was outside of pump because they just reopened pump. Amazing. I don't know why it was closed through the entire pandemic. Like most of it's outdoors anyway. What did she say about Francis Quito? Oh, she was just like, how old is he? How much does he weigh? What are, just all the basic shit. I don't know. You know, that's a kind of personal question to ask a dog's weight. The, uh, the funny <laughs> thing, though, was that she was not wearing a mask. I got like really close to her and I was like, you know what? Fuck it. If I'm going to get coronavirus, let it be from Lisa Vanderpump. And I will now be doing this podcast from outside. (laughs) It's fine. It's fine. All right. Should we talk about the Grammys? Sure. I think it's great that we talk about this stuff later in the week because you forget about all the stuff that doesn't really matter. That's true. We're more focused. Exactly. So So where that's a really positive. That's a really positive spin on the fact that we're talking about this like six days late. I know. Well, I feel like made the biggest splash. And his ratty Gucci boa. We should explain because you're probably hearing a bleep sound over the name Harry Styles. And it's because for some reason Chelsea has decided to shadow ban him from our podcast. Look, I think that his style is great. He seems like a really nice guy. I just think that he's overrated and I don't need to hear more. However, talk about his Gucci outfits. Well, no, he looked great. He has an amazing stylist. I thought both of his Grammy looks were great. But, I mean, I still don't care about his music. I need to know, like, what blood oath did he sign with Gucci? Clearly, it's a very fruitful partnership for both of them. I will agree with you. I didn't understand the hype about Harry Styles until I saw him perform and those rock-hard abs with that butterfly and the leather blazer. I went, oh, I get it now. I still think that shirtless is a really hard look for any guy, even if they do have the body for it. I kind of only want it from like Lenny Kravitz. And even he wears like a mesh tank top. I thought the person who looked maybe the best this evening was Megan Thee Stallion. Okay. What did she wear again? She wore an outfit that was obviously took inspiration from Marilyn Monroe's famous pink dress and diamonds from Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, but it was in orange and designed by Dolce & Gabbana in a very, like, undolce dress. It looked more Moschino. It looked more in that sort of light. I think her, when I saw her and Lizzo, both of them reminded me of the... 80s Barbies from my youth and like their evening wear looks where everything is just like really campy and exaggerated. It was a very Barbie aesthetic. Totally. I mean, and speaking of campy and exaggerated, did you see Noah Cyrus? I did. I was going to get into that. I always, when outfits don't work on the red carpet, I always wonder, do they know in the moment, was her stylist calling Scaparelli and pulling that dress such a big moment that she tried it on and was like, well, this doesn't look good on me, but I have no other choice because this huge fashion house is lent to me. I feel like she felt like very confident in this look. 
to illustrate this, she wore a cream-colored column gown that had this dramatic taffeta poof that kind of enveloped the top half of her body. It was very Bob Mackie. And I actually thought about Bob Mackie a lot during this. Dua Lipa's Versace look was very, like, early Mackie. Well, she's stolen her whole persona from Cher at this point. Totally. There's a lot of people whose names and faces I do not know, which is very typical of the Grammys for me, that were in Mackie-esque looks. And it just sucks that everyone dragged him and dragged Cher for so many years. And now, like, literally everyone dresses like that. It's very true. I mean, going back to Noah Cyrus, I don't know if Scaparelli and Noah Cyrus is a good combination. It's a terrible combination. Well, to our point, we're not sure if Scaparelli and anyone is a good combo. I didn't love Beyonce's look either. The The gloves ruined it for me. Those fingernail gloves that I actually talked about on the last podcast that are from last season, by the way. I mean, the dress, the dress itself was cool. It evoked... Pamela Anderson in barbed wire for me, which I think makes sense for Beyonce. But there is no need to make this look weird, which is basically what happened with the gloves. Although at least her stylist refrained from putting her in another pair of tiny sunglasses, which was a relief. It, it would have clashed with the uh, N95 mask. Well, I also thought the earrings were a bit fussy too. They were very similar to the ones that Kim Kardashian wore with her Hulk outfit. And the whole thing made me think of that clip of Polly Mellon from Unzipped, where I believe she's talking about Angelica Houston's choice of accessories. And she says fussy finished in this really dramatic way. Like when something gets too fussy, when there's too many elements, when there's a glove that doesn't need to be there, an earring that doesn't need to be there, it just unravels the whole look. So I think this was a real fussy finished moment. Fussy finished. Fussy finished. Also, you can tell that Beyonce and her stylist also felt this way because of the photos of this look that they chose to post on their Instagrams, like you couldn't even see how it actually looked. So bad Monday for Daniel Roseberry is what you're saying. Again, I continue to not like it at all, but I do think Dua Lipa looked amazing. She wore like just a very typical sort of sheer crystal Versace dress with a butterfly bodice. But the butterfly bodice reminded me of the Versace dress that Christina Aguilera wore when she won Best New Artist, like whenever that was. 2000 or 2001. What did you think of the Heim sisters in coordinating Prada? You know we love a twinning look, but what would you call three people matching a thrinning look? That's just a thruple, I guess. I, I thought they looked cool. It, it's nice to see Prada do a red carpet look that actually looks like Prada. I feel like usually their custom red carpet looks end up looking like they could be designed by any designer because they the sort of ugly chic thing that their brand is built on, that never translates into a red carpet look, whereas this did. Other honorable mentions, Doja Cat in Cavalli in a look that we're convinced Pink probably once wore to the Grammys or the VMAs. Yeah, in the like early Lady 2000s. Marmalade era. I feel like it's kind of basic to be like, this is, looks terrible because that's the point. My friend Gabriel Held, fantastic vintage jeweler and stylist, coined the term trashinista, and that's what this is. This is a full red carpet trashinista moment. It's funny when people act like that type of look isn't intentional. Yeah, it's completely intentional. This was, imagine a custom piece. It was a custom piece. Actually, I remember on the e-red carpet thing, they said it was the first custom Cavalli moment since they brought on that new creative director. 
I have no idea who Chica is, but she looked cool. Did you see that? Oh, my God, yeah. In the coordinating pastel Nike, including matching mask. Yeah, she wore, like, a Nike tracksuit. She was carrying that Versace Medusa bag that I think we talked about in the last episode. She looked good. Also, so did Billie Eilish, you know, another person that's taken a Gucci blood oath. Do we want to talk about the WAP of it all? Yeah, as I was watching it, I was like, oh, yeah, this must be conservatives' fucking nightmare. And as I predicted, it was a whole Tucker Carlson and Candace Owens segment about how this was ripping the fabric of, of America apart. I mean, I wasn't personally offended by it, although I feel like Cardi was not fully present for this performance. The lip syncing was really obvious. She was a step off. There are rumors maybe she's pregnant. She has said that that very Thierry Mugler, but I don't think it was Mugler. Yeah, it looked like Mugler. So it was either vintage Mugler or her costume designer did something similar to that. But she said it was 20 pounds, which might have been the reason why her dance steps were. Well, then it's like, don't wear that. There was also that. It also, there was so much green screen shit. It's like she looked like she was trapped in a screensaver. I didn't need all of the visuals. Obviously, I really liked the giant Lucite stripper heel. I really liked the giant bed, but I didn't need the video component. I loved the scissoring part. I could have watched that for hours. I thought you were poo-pooing on uh, scissoring. Never. That's, That's why it was kind of awkward. Cardi was kind of awkward because Megan was so good. Like, when she comes in with that verse, she killed it. And she made Cardi look not that good, you know? It it was reminiscent to that moment where they forced Britney to perform after Beyonce at the MTV Awards when she did the whole lemonade uh, melody. Right, right. True. But honestly, I mean, Megan's verse on that song has always been stronger than the first Cardi verse in WAP. The second Cardi verse is good think about it i'm thinking about it you know what was so fucking awkward when megan the stallion won for the savage remix and beyonce yeah. came up there and then they were like leaving the stage and trevor noah was like hold up we just need to let you know that beyonce now has more grammys than like anyone's ever had it's like bitch don't ruin megan's moment like that it would be one thing if it was fucking that but he said you're one award away from breaking the record which yeah, is you're like tied it's like okay That's the kind of thing that you bring up after the commercial break. You don't like stop someone from getting on the stage and make them awkwardly stand there. I could while you pull out this like Guinness Book of World Records shit. I also couldn't decipher because Beyonce looked genuinely shocked and it doesn't seem like much shocks her. She had to have known that if she won two awards that night, she was going to break the record for most awarded musician, which I kept thinking because he didn't name who was the other person that she was going to unseat. And I was like, oh, it has to be Michael Jackson. That's why he's not saying it. But it's Alison Krauss. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Oh, we didn't even get into your love, Taylor Swift, and her coordinating dress and mask. Obviously, it doesn't really speak to my personal aesthetic, but it's very Taylor. If I was her stylist, I would have pulled that. So I think she looked cute. I liked the matching mask. A lot of matching masks, which surprised... It's not that it surprised me at the Grammys. It surprised me that on the runways, we weren't seeing a ton of matching outfits to masks because I feel like this is going to be an omnipresent thing for the next year or so a thousand percent i also wish instead of designers making luxury masks that they just like slap their logo on a disposable n95 or something 
Like if you could literally just get an N95 mask that just said Balenciaga or something, you buy like a 10 pack of them for whatever, that would be genius. Yeah, I'm surprised that Scaparelli hasn't been tempted to do, you know, a leather mask with like a giant breast where the mouth should be or something. A gold-plated booby. Ew. Immediately after the Grammys, we tuned into another must-see television event, which was the finale of the HBO docuseries, Alan vs. Pharaoh. The series examines the decades-old allegations of sexual assault against Woody Allen by his daughter Dylan and the subsequent deterioration of his relationship with his longtime partner and frequent collaborator Mia Farrow. I can't overstate how upsetting this is. <laughs> oh, series yeah. is especially if you're a Woody Allen fan like I don't even know where to begin oh it's a it's a heavy fucking watch not that I was expecting it to bring me the calm of like an HGTV show but it was somehow worse than I was expecting I've had a long-standing interest in this story. The Woody and Soon Yi scandal was one of the first big celebrity scandals that I remember hearing about when I was a child. Although I don't remember ever hearing about Dylan's allegations. I became aware of that, I think, in my 20s when I read Mia Farrow's memoir, What Falls Away. And I'm shocked by the fact that up until relatively recently, no one really seemed to care about it. Yeah, I thought the most interesting thing about the last episode is how they really do chart how different the response has been when Dylan spoke out in 2014 versus a year ago versus two years ago. I don't know how many people who are Woody Allen supporters watched it. I've seen the criticism. You don't think Alec Baldwin (laughs) tuned in? You know, I've seen the criticism, right? Those that are trying to deride the documentary say, well, it's biased towards Mia and, you know, they didn't ask Woody. And it's like they reveal in the last part they did ask him. He would not submit himself to an interview. Well, you also do hear his side of the story. There's a lot of voiceovers that were taken from... His, his audio mem- book. Yeah, his, the audio book of his memoir that came out not that long ago. The most illuminating part of the documentary to me was in the third part, because I knew so little about it, which was when Woody sued for sole custody of Ronan, who was then known as Satchel, Moses, and Dylan. That's morally reprehensible. Like, pedophilia aside, how petty he was. Not only did he not get sole custody, but he got a verbal lashing from the judge who not only did not grant him sole custody, he denied visitation rights for him to Dylan and then felt the need to comment in his judgment that Alan was a self-absorbed, untrustworthy, and insensitive father who didn't know basic facts about his children. Clearly, he is very self-absorbed. You know, the other long-standing narrative to derive Mia and Dylan is this thing of like, well, Mia's just a vindictive, angry partner who did this because Woody left her for, for her child. And it's like, when watching the documentary, you see how fragile she is. The last thing she is is an angry vindictive person yeah again yes she's an actress but when you watch it i mean i thought it was so heartbreaking in the last part when they asked her if she had a partner after woody and she said yeah i had a few but and then they asked did she ever bring that partner home and she said how could i i don't i obviously showed i don't have the judgment to bring someone else into my home yeah that that was absolutely heartbreaking she didn't want to believe it just like I don't want to believe it. Just like everyone doesn't want to believe it. I mean, and, and that's why I think those who are Woody Allen supporters 
have not watched this documentary because she over and over again makes that point. That probably is why, and she certainly blames herself enough that this happened to Dylan is she didn't take enough steps because she didn't want to see how could you after 12 years of being with a partner why would you think this is true also my queen Brene Brown is always talking about vulnerability and how much strength there is in vulnerability and I think Woody Allen is someone that intrinsically understands that he he made himself so vulnerable to the audience by being open about his neuroses and making self-deprecating jokes and all of that sort of stuff his films like normalize going to therapy and stuff like that. It was like very ahead of its time. There is really no other director that people derive their personality from. Even a Scorsese or a Tarantino, you like their films, but I don't think you derive a personality from that. Well, that's because they're not starring in their own films, thankfully. Basically, because he made himself so vulnerable, it's like that's why we're just all inclined to believe him when he says that he didn't do this, or some people would be. I do need to ask a slightly fucked up question. There's one photo they show of Dylan again and again as a young child. Yeah, well, like, was there one photo of her taken? That's not, that's not the question I have, but... Do you feel like a young Scarlett Johansson looks like Dylan? Because I do. Oh, God, I didn't think of that. But that's, yeah, that's completely on the nose. They do look quite similar. And I also thought that the documentary was illuminating and showing the damage that he's caused decades afterwards by popularizing parental alienation. Yeah, that was, I had no understanding of that before watching this. Parental alienation is basically when the mother falsely accuses the father of sexual abuse in some sort of custody dispute or, you know, typically in a divorce proceeding. God, he's an asshole. Do you want to get into the over the unfortunate overlap between Woody Allen and Sex and the City? There's more than you think there would be. Well, where do we want to start? Or should be. I think the first reference I can remember, right, is in season three when they go to L.A. and Miranda's talking about Lou, the former Letterman writer, and Samantha goes, oh, that Woody Allen thing is so over. Yeah. See, Samantha knows best. She called it then. The other being my favorite, I mean, let's just cut to it now. The raw food movement? People love it. Sting, Demi, Sunyi, Sunmi. I mean, that is just so perfectly of its time, right? Like, when did that... When did that episode come out? There could not be a more 2003 line than talking about a raw food diet. And Demi. Yeah, Demi's raw food diet. And giving Samantha a younger boyfriend, which I'm now realizing had to have been inspired by Demi and Ashton getting together. Totally. And then there's another thing that not that many people know about, but us being Sex and the City historians was the first thing that came to mind, which was the scene where Aiden proposes to Carrie on the street. That was in front of Woody Allen's apartment. His townhouse, yeah. And while they were filming that scene, Sarah Jessica Parker mentioned this in an interview once, Woody Allen and Soon Yi were just standing in the window looking down at them. No wonder their engagement was cursed, honestly. (laughs) It's a bad, bad sign. Sarah Jessica Parker's never been in a Woody Allen movie, which makes no sense to me the more I think about it. she knew. 
I like to think that. Good judgment on Sarah Jessica Parker. And I assume Matthew Broderick, two quintessentially New York actors who, yeah, have never been in a Woody Allen film. It's pretty whack. No, no, it's not. No, it's it's great. It's great. It's great. All right. Let's talk about something not depressing. Uh, Would that be Hermes launching a mushroom leather alternative? Okay, let's get into that. So this week, Hermes debuted a reimagining of their Victoria bag with canvas, elements of calfskin, and Sylvania, an amber-hued material uh, that the brand developed with a company called MycoWorks, a California-based startup that has developed a patented process to turn mycelium, which is a network of threads from the root structure of a mushroom, into a material that imitates the properties of leather. So basically, Hermes is impossible meeting leather for their bags. I love that they are courting a more conscious consumer with their mushroom leather, but this is also a company that still makes bags out of literal crocodiles. They said that they're not going to stop making leather bags as it's a luxury staple. Also, this bag has calfskin, so it's not like it's a vegan bag necessarily. Wait, what do you mean it has calfskin? That's what they described the bag. It's going to be made of canvas, elements of calfskin, and this Sylvania, which is the mushroom leather imitation. That's so weird. Like, why? They're trying to be better. I mean, also what's going on is there seems to be an arms race in rivaling like mushroom leather companies. So Stella McCartney and uh, Keering, which owns Gucci and Stella McCartney, are among a bunch of companies that have partnered with Bolt Threads, which is a rival maker of mushroom-based leather. It's like the space race, but with... Fake leather. Who Who's going to craft the correct fake leather that's going to inspire people to spend $4,000 or whatever? I don't know, but it needs to happen because the current fake leather offerings are not cutting it. And also, I mean, leather is a resource-intensive process that involves a ton of water, land, energy. You have to rear cows. you got to kill said cows. The chemicals and dyes to treat the leather, it's not a good look. But is the mushroom leather sustainable, like in that sense? There's no word on on that. It does get into the whole electric car, great, but how do you dispose of all those batteries? Is that somehow worse than the problem it's trying to solve? Well, I guess we'll just have to stay tuned and... I did see what happens. I do find it interesting that Myco Works just closed another round of funding, and among the people who are funding the company include Natalie Portman and John Legend. I mean, that checks out. Yeah. But is John Legend like, no, he's a meat eater. He is, but I think he believes there's going to be a huge return on this, like the people who got in early on investing in impossible meat. Yeah. It's a larger question of, you're not only changing the the process in which you make these luxury items, but you are also trying to change the mindset of what luxury is. You're which tr- is an admirable pursuit for them. Right. There's not many brands on that level. It's interesting that they've chosen this bag and obviously not the, the mainstay Birkin bag. Also, this bag is like pretty ugly. That's a conversation for another time that most <laughs> Hermes bags are pretty ugly. But <laughs> moving on. This is a story that we didn't get to last week, but I think it does deserve discussion, which is the continuing belt tightening at Condé Nast. Condé Nast, which publishes Vogue and Allure and Bon Appetit and Vanity Fair. So Women's Wear Daily is reporting that the latest thing that they have cut is the Condé Nast ID card will now no longer allow you free admission at the Met, MoMA, and the Whitney. So they're going to have to pay that $22 admission themselves. That sucks. You need those perks. 
yeah, in I, a job like that where most people are receiving relatively modest salaries. Those jobs become livable when you have an expense account, you know, can see a free show at MoMA. <laughs> in its heyday, editors had clothing allowances, assistants could take chauffeured cars home if they worked beyond a certain hour. And then this is what I found amazing. I mean, people used to take like stretch limos to fashion week yeah, less. back in the day. The thing I found the most interesting, which I didn't know about, is that Condé Nast even helped certain people get interest-free loans to buy homes. That's nice. Yeah. So they're not doing that anymore. Certainly not. But where was that for Andre Leontali? Yeah, what the fuck? So some other cost-cutting measures include just not paying the full rent at One World Trade Center, which is like, haven't they been through enough? Jeez. What do you mean not paying the rent? They've just defaulted on their... Well, they're not paying it in full. So they're paying half of it, a quarter of it. They're trying to get less floor space, which is like, you guys did that. You yeah, made like a whole you big just show. moved there. Yeah. Take over some old factory in Guanis like everyone else if you don't want to pay crazy rents. Or have everyone work at home. Everyone works remotely anyway and just have like a WeWork space. A WeVogue space. <laughs> That's not to say that Condé Nast doesn't make a lot of money. I mean, their revenue last year was a billion dollars in the U.S. The Really? But the problem is that the cost to run all of that has put them in the red. They have not been profitable since 2017. In 2019, they reported a $100 million loss. So no more expensing your your Pret lunches. (laughs) That sucks. Like, the interns have it hard enough. They should at least get free lunch. They have really dragged their feet about consolidating all their different departments and really being truthful of the fact that people still want the content that's in magazines, but not in magazines. Their budgets are still heavily weighted to the magazine when really they should be refocusing on video or digital content. So the CEO, Roger Lynch, is said to be very uninterested in print media. And the rumor is that they're going to soon turn all the eventually turn all the publications digital. It seems like they don't even want to sell magazines, though. Going back to giving M. Rada's pregnancy reveal a digital cover. It's like, so you don't want to sell magazines. Because I would think that that's like what would sell a magazine. That's like the only model that people really care about now, apart from the Hadids and Kendall. and And another thing that I found shocking is they were pointing out that there's very little ad revenue from Allure, that the magazines are super, super thin, which is... I believe it. It's like, have you seen an issue of Allure? It's literally like the coupon thing that you get in the mail. I know, but it seems weird since in the last five years, beauty, skincare, and wellness has skyrocketed. It should be like a September issue of Vogue with the amount of ads in it. But everyone's getting their beauty tips from the internet. How robust is their digital presence? That is a publication that really should become a subscription box of some sort and a YouTube channel. Roger Lynch, CEO of Condé Nast, we're available. We got ideas. (laughs) So we want to introduce a new feature on the Every Outfit podcast, which is the outfit of the week where we will look at all the outfits and pick the one that we feel is the most newsworthy. And what better format than an audio podcast to do that? Totally. I think the outfit of the week was Wendy Williams. Not just because this week she also burped and farted simultaneously on air. Love her for that. Um, But she was papped wearing a really incredible outfit. She wore a Supreme sweatshirt with no pants, a blue fun fur Ivy Park coat, furry boots like a muckluck type thing, and a Birkin. And the classic blue surgical mask. 
And what I love is that that is a well-loved, well-used Birkin. She looked cool. She looked like a cool girl on Mercer Street. In 2008? I genuinely think it's the most interesting outfit of the week. And we had the Grammys. We are in agreement about this outfit. But do you think going forward in a post-pandemic world where we've been wearing sweats for a year that it's about just going pantsless? It's kind of crazy that she went pantsless just because it's like quite cold in New York now. The time to go pantsless is the fall, that transition, you know? Wendy feels no pain. Shall we get into the Kardashians? We've never had more Kardashian stuff to talk about. Yes. And before we get into it, I do want to make a statement for those that hate this segment and feel the need to leave reviews that drag our podcast rating down because of it. We know this isn't for everyone. That's why we put it at the end of the show so that those who don't want to listen to it can simply end the podcast Yeah, turn the podcast off now if you don't like the Kardashians. Yeah, if we were real cunts, we would just put this segment in the middle and you couldn't figure out where we would talk about it. Yeah, no, we're thoughtful, considerate people. Having said that, it is our show, and the Kardashians are a preoccupation of ours. Dissecting why and how they became omnipresent, we believe is a worthwhile cultural pursuit. Also, may I add, if you want them to go away, understanding why they are so popular is the first step in dismantling them. (laughs) And to those that say that we worship them, I don't think you're actually listening to the segment. Now having said that, let's talk about how we went to the drive-in premiere for Keeping Up With The Kardashians. Kardashaholics Anonymous. This is a case for the FBI. So due to an act of God, we were able to secure tickets to the Keeping Up With The Kardashians season premiere drive-in experience in LA. The best part of it was that Lauren and I were having a minor disagreement via text message at the time. And then she fully like interrupted our fight to be like, um, actually, like I just got last minute tickets to the Kardashian premiere and it starts in an hour and a half in Pasadena. So I was just like, fuck it dropped what I was doing and went over to her house and we paused our fight (laughs) we were like we'll talk about this later and we had a delightful evening see our love for the Kardashians just like keeps bringing us together it's a it's a balm for anything and everything totally it was so good so we drive to Pasadena it's at the Rose Bowl we drive up and there's a step and repeat but for your car So we like rolled onto it and then, you know, just like looked out the windows, waved to the photographer, whatever. That photo is fucked. I mean, maybe if we ever do a Patreon, we can like unlock access to that photo. Also, just a minor, a minor critique to the photo is the whole point of a step and repeat is the branded keeping up the Kardashian premiere on the step and repeat. You can barely see it. Yeah, it was like cropped in too much. So it was basically just like us in our car. Each ticket, which was only a dollar. You got mm-hmm. for a car. Got you two branded keeping up with the Kardashian little boxes. Yeah, I'm drinking the branded water right now. Also, Lauren, I wore a KKW body for you. Today. Mm-hmm. I can barely smell it. It's not that good. I honestly just got it because of the bottle. But we got a mask that says Bible. Uh-huh. Uh, we got a hat that says you're doing amazing, yeah. sweetie, which I will be wearing. We got a coffee cup. We got some swag. So that was cool. I mean, obviously, a big part of the reason why we went is that we were expecting that someone would introduce the film. We knew we weren't going to get Kim. Yeah, we're not idiots. 
But we thought, Scott, we would have settled for a food god appearance. Well, a thousand percent, because as Lauren said, this event cost $2. It's not a money-making enterprise. It is something that's very much part of E's marketing budget for the final season. Like, you're telling me you couldn't have gotten Jonathan Siobhan with $10,000 and a $5,000 glam budget? Come on. Exactly. So anyway, MJ, she's vaccinated. No, no we got we to gotta protect MJ. You know she's double-vaxxed. So we watched the first episode. By the time that this episode is going up, the first episode will have premiered so we can talk about what it's all about. It's COVID part two, right? They started filming last season on their phones as the pandemic was beginning and we're still there. We're now in summertime. They've decided that because they can't vacation anywhere, they're going to go to their friend's house in Malibu and do a staycation of sorts. Yeah, like they fully acted like they were in like Turks and Caicos or some shit, but really they were like a 15 minute drive away from their houses for those that don't live in los angeles and wonder why they're constantly at nobu in malibu it's because it's truly 15 20 minutes from calabasas and calabasas is not near anything you would want to go to unless you want to go to the place where they get their big salads which we do other things in this episode kim took the baby bar in her lucky pajamas so invested in this process yeah she thinks that she passed but they don't get the results for two whole months so she did pass. Well, I, I assume. Yeah, we she know pa- she passed. Yeah, like, she passed. She obviously passed. Scott and Sophia broke up, which is a surprise to no one. They're trying to lay the foundation and tease as if Courtney and Scott may be getting back together. But us living now, nine months after this show is being shot, no, that's not true. So I don't know why we're we're doing this storyline, but we're doing that nonetheless uh they're also laying the groundwork this was so fucking bizarre so chloe and tristan are together but they're not so she's explaining going well, they're co-parenting they're co-parenting but they're talking about getting pregnant again so you're like okay they're back together and then she later explained they're not and he's just going to be a sperm donor yeah and she's getting in vitro it's fucked up just fuck him it's you like know, phantom thread level twisted to get in vitro instead of just fucking your ex. You know why, which is she really oh, wants right. a surrogate. She doesn't want to fuck up her body again. So they're doing this protracted storyline. So when she announces that she's pregnant through a surrogate, we're not like, what? Here's the other weird thing is they all talk, but especially Chloe in this episode talks about God and God's will and God's plan. And da, 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 da. Yet don't factor in. Maybe it's God's plan that he doesn't want you to have another child with tristan that's god's plan (laughs) would be my plan i mean the tristan apology tour is happening they've sort of brought him back to the show he did the confessional or what is that yeah the like interview he did the confessional interview with chloe i think we're heading for a full reconciliation speaking of chloe though did you see her perform at the grammys with john mayer I know, I couldn't believe it. I didn't know that she was so talented. Honestly, though, I thought it was her. We're talking about Maren Morris, who performed with John Mayer at the Grammys, but her resemblance to Chloe at this particular event was absolutely insane. Because if you look up photos of Maren Morris, she doesn't look like Chloe, but that evening, uh, they will, okay, they've both gotten some work recently. No shame. They've both gotten the same kind of work. It's it's like when like Genesis Peorage and her girlfriend got plastic surgery so that they could look like each other. That's like what's happening with Megan Morris and, and with Megan, 
with um, Marin Morris. Morris and Khloe Kardashian. You know, the single white female of it all is furthered by the fact that they share the same stylist too. Does she just have the same rack for <laughs> for both of for them? For both of them? Did she think that she, she thought was she was dressing Chloe? Chloe. <laughs> she was like, God, Chloe has some pipes on her. Oh, speaking of Vogue, they're trying to roll out this new web show called Good Morning Vogue, which this week featured a 20-minute sit-down interview with Kim Kardashian and her Little Richard lip, as we call it. It's been more Chloe that's been into doing this style of lip liner. Yeah, we're of course talking about they not only get lip filler, but then also overline their lips. But they've been doing this particular thing just on the top lip, which is neither a optical illusion nor is it overlining. It again just looks like John Waters' mustache above their lips. I mean, I love that lineage of Little Richard to John Waters to Kim Kardashian. I mean, legends only. To me, it wasn't the most riveting interview, but I love Kim, so I was happy to go along for the ride. And I'm grateful that I watched the full 20-minute interview because if I hadn't, I would never know that Kathy Bates is a Skims fan. That was stunning. And Kim is actively trying to get Kathy Bates as a model for Skims campaign. Can you imagine just like Kathy Bates by Vanessa Beecroft for skims obsessed kathy bates even went as far as to send kim a note thanking her for creating skims and professing her love for them yeah i thought the part that you wanted to talk about because i only watched the first eight minutes and chelsea was like watch the rest of it because something's going to pop out to you i thought what you were hinting at was the interviewer asked her multiple times like oh since the pandemic have you thought about who you want to keep in your circle and she's like yeah you really think about who you want to spend your time with and who you don't want to spend your time with and i'm like is this coded about kanye and the divorce well she definitely doesn't want to spend time with kanye that's not happening and you know rightfully so no i was talking about the part where she talks about the fact that she identifies as a punk I mean, maybe yes. we should just put a clip here and let and let Kim speak for herself. And I think punk is just an attitude. It just means that you live your life your way and beat to your own drum. And hopefully that makes people, inspire people to want to do that for themselves. I just want to know, is she more of a Sex Pistols punk or a Black Flag punk? What's the punk scene like in Calabasas? I mean, she does lift like Henry Rollins in the early 90s, so... <laughs> That's so true. No, yeah, but... you're right. She's more of a black flag. And she's not incorrect. I know how it's... It may seem easy to make fun of that idea. It's not punk in the sense of safety pins in the 70s and 80s idea of punk. I think it very much is... An attitude. An attitude, but truly anyone that goes against the grain of what the narrative that society has put on them... She does have a punk spirit. Could you believe that the interviewer said he had previously interviewed her for Vogue a couple years ago? And he was like, first of all, we should be interviewing her. Because this guy was like, oh, I had never watched Keeping Up with the Kardashians when I first interviewed you. And then I started. It's like, don't to say that. Oh, don't admit to not doing like the most basic form of research when you're interviewing one of the most famous and prolific celebrities in the world. Yeah, I did not care for his slight attitude of like, I didn't realize how like prolific and popular you are. I don't understand it. It's like, yes, bitch. Like you're sitting across from genius. Okay, well, well let's... <laughs> this also makes... Well, whatever. You can quote me on that. Once Kim Kardashian has undergone her full uh, lawyer transformation and is producing like Oscar winning 
documentaries about getting people out of jail, then I will be proved right. But it also, that guy made you really wish that they hadn't burned their bridges with Andre Leontali. Or even like Hamish Bowles, get him to talk to her. Again, I say get us to talk. Vogue, we're available. Anyone but this guy. Who are we even talking about? Who was this guy? What's his background? Talking about Jonathan Van Meter, who is an older gay gentleman. He's kind of, he's a contributing (laughs) editor. (laughs) Unidentified gay gentleman to bring (laughs) back to Sex in the City. He's a contributing editor to Vogue. He's done profiles on Gal Gadot, Ashley Graham. He just has that vibe of like slight disdain for anyone who's more successful than him that he can't comprehend, which obviously Kim is one of them. Yeah, he didn't pass the vibe check. He didn't, and it's a 20-minute interview, so they should have got... I would have rathered a 73-question-esque interview. This is also why we need the definitive Oprah Kardashian family sit down. Like, everyone. Caitlyn, Rob, Kim, Chris, you know, the gang's all there. This is more nerd shit you're not going to care about, but there's about to be something called the Snyder Cut of the Justice League that's four hours long, which is two hours longer than the original. Okay, I think I actually did hear about this. Okay, but see, that's what we need. We need the Snyder Cut Kardashian interview. I want a four-hour sit-down with everyone. Can't you just imagine Oprah and Chris walking around Calabasas? I would love it. So Kanye is really rich. Something we learned this week. Uh, Yeah, the New York Post somehow got their hands on Kanye's financials, and they say that he's worth $6.6 billion. The bulk of this is a valuation of Yeezy sneaker brand, which they put at $3.7 billion. They also value his upcoming Gap collaboration, which has not even debuted at a billion. Okay, but is the Gap even worth a billion dollars at this point? No. I mean, it is important to note that the Yeezy annual revenue was $1.7 billion last year. And according to Bloomberg, Kanye netted about $191 million in royalties. Also, what I thought was illuminating, which kind of makes sense, but that Yeezy is an investor in skims. Oh, I didn't know that. That's, I mean, that's smart. Which they value skims at $1.7 billion. Additional assets include his music catalog, which they put at $110 million, and then he has an additional $122 million in cash and stocks. So it should be explained, net worth is not, he doesn't It's ha- not liquid. <laughs> no. He doesn't have $6 billion. Do I even think Kanye has a billion? Probably not, right? These are valuations on his brands and not the revenue that it brings in. The, the gap line has not debuted. I think that's inflated. Well, yeah. We haven't even seen a piece from it. Why did this come out, though? Does does this have to do with, is this because Kim and Kanye are getting a divorce and they're going to have to, like... I originally thought that the New York Post pretends like they got their hands on his financials, but it's actually from a Bloomberg article that's talking more about trying to make Gap a billion-dollar brand like uh, Yeezy has been. I loved The Gap growing up. The Gap was, like, very important to me. The Gap's branding and marketing is something that is, from that period, has stayed with me throughout my life. I would love to shop at The Gap again. I would love to. But if you go in there, it's, like, the saddest place you've ever been. No, I... Nothing's cool. Well, the question becomes is, is the answer to Saving Gap making it a a mass-produced fuckboy line? No, it's just making good basics, which is the core concept of The Gap, yet not what they've been delivering. You'll go in there and it's like some ugly peasant blouse with a tiny little ratchet floral print. Like, it's not basics. Like, you can't get a good pair of jeans there. Even though that, like, very stiff 90s denim is what everyone wants right now. Not at The Gap. Like, when's the last time you've been to The Gap at The Grove? Oh, never. 
It sucks. It's the same with J. Crew. You know, it's like I want it to be good, but it's not. We've really gone off the rails from. <laughs> so yeah, Kanye might be valued at six point six billion, but unfortunately, this podcast is not. <laughs> with these fucking inflated prices, I'm just gonna say our podcast is worth is valued at twenty million. Just make up sure. the numbers. Yeah, sure. All right, well, this has been fun, except when we talked about Woody Allen for like 20 minutes. We're going to go back to the, the dumpster fire that is living in 2021. We hope to see you next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.